Well, good morning, Kenwood. We are just a few weeks from the end of our summer study, Go Love Your Neighbor, Go Love Your Neighborhood. I trust you've taken steps of faith uh, to do that this summer, steps of obedience. The call to go love our neighbor, the call to go love our neighborhood uh, is a call to action. And there are ways that we can do that even during a pandemic. I've got a small garden in my backyard uh, and uh, I took a few tomatoes from it yesterday and delivered them to an elderly man across the street from us. Uh, I wore a mask, uh, talked with him for a few minutes, just a simple way to touch base with one of my neighbors for a few minutes. Let's all look for ways to do that and to love our neighbor. Our neighborhoods are filled with different kinds of people, aren't they? A few weeks back, Pastor Fred took us to Luke 8, and we were encouraged or we encountered a demon possessed man, and we spent time uh, learning how to love a scary neighbor, a neighbor that might be enveloped in wickedness. Some of us have neighbors like that. Two weeks ago, we encountered the woman at the well, and we spent time learning how to love a neighbor with a complex uh, and blemished past. Last week, we encountered Jesus receiving praise and anointing from a sinful woman whom he had extended forgiveness to. I'm sure your neighborhood uh, has these types of people in it. And it's important for us to see that Jesus doesn't avoid those types of neighbors. We're called to love those kinds of people in word and deed, just as Jesus did. The past several weeks have led us to people who didn't have very compelling life resumes. There are certainly particular challenges and opportunities with people like that, and we, we praise God for his extended mercy. But this morning, we encounter a very different scenario. Today in Mark 10, we encounter someone on the opposite end of the spectrum, someone whose life resume rises to the top. It's impressive. It even appears to be spotless. Now, this same story is actually told in Matthew and in Luke as well. Mark's account is the longest account, but both Matthew and Luke actually provide some details that Mark doesn't. When we, when we combine the data from the three stories, we encounter the person commonly called the rich young ruler. Matthew adds the detail that he was young. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. Uh, he had a position of authority, may have been a, a synagogue ruler, a religious leader. I pray that as we look at Mark's account today, we will continue to grow in our ability to love a diversity of people in our neighborhoods. We'll move through the passage uh, this morning in three parts, and then we'll seek to define some responses at the end. So the first thing that we encounter in Mark 10 is a good man with a great question. A good man with a great question. In verse 17, we are gripped by his eagerness and his sincerity. He runs up to Jesus, kneels before him. And this is exactly what every one of us should do. We should run to Jesus and fall before him. And his question, oh wow, his question, this is it. This is the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Wow, the door is just flung open, isn't it? This is the ultimate and essential question of life. And we're actually hard-pressed to find anybody else in the New Testament running up to Jesus and asking about eternal life so explicitly. Healing? Yeah, lots of people run up to Jesus and ask for that. Forgiveness? People ask for that too. Many people have some nagging guilt that they like to unload at some point. But what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that's jackpot. That's incredible. If a neighbor knocked on your door and asked you that question this afternoon, could you answer it? I hope that you could. Now, to ask the question, the man actually addressed Jesus as good teacher. And we're a bit taken aback by Jesus' response. I mean, given the question, just forget the introductions, Jesus. Pull out the gospel track and get this guy to pray the prayer. This can be wrapped up in minutes, right? But Jesus looks at this man and asks, why do you call me good? And the way it's written in the Greek tells us that Jesus emphasized me. Why do you call me good? And then Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. What is Jesus doing? Well, in this day, uh, it was actually pretty uncommon to call a rabbi good. You didn't hear the phrase good teacher very often. There were plenty of titles that rabbis didn't mind people using, but it was understood that God alone was good. So they tried to steer clear of that title. They wanted to avoid any hints of blasphemy or be considered equal to God. Now on this side of the story, you and I know that Jesus is the Son of God. He could have received that title. But what Jesus is doing here is actually raising this man's understanding of good. He's saying, look, if we're going to talk about good, our attention should be towards our Heavenly Father, towards God Almighty. Our eyes should not be looking out at other people. Our, our eyes should not be looking in at ourselves. Our eyes should be looking up towards God. Well, Jesus continues uh, and he summarizes the second half of the Ten Commandments in verse 19. Interestingly, he, he doesn't list them in their exact Old Testament order. At any rate, Jesus says, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, uh, honor your father and mother. The other one Jesus says is do not defraud. And that expression isn't a direct quote. The, the direct quote from the Ten Commandments would have been do not covet. However, do not defraud is an expression of do not covet. To defraud is to take by illicit means, often by withholding. So it's possible that a rich person could do this by withholding proper wages in order to pad their own profits. At any rate, Jesus lays these commandments out and then the man responds in verse 20, teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. Notice he still calls Jesus teacher, though he's dropped the title good. That tells us he listens well, is, is quick to respond and respect Jesus. This guy isn't looking for a fight. This guy is looking to dot all his I's and cross all his T's. 
Now, you and I might be tempted to yell, liar, at this point to this guy. But verse 21 stops us in our tracks because it says that Jesus looked at this man or looked into the man and loved him. Now, we know that when Jesus uh, is face-to-face with a hypocrite, he will call them that. He had plenty of tough words for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He called them hypocrites. He called them a brood of vipers, blind guides, and whitewashed tombs. None of those labels were meant to flatter. Jesus is a straight shooter. And I just think he would have pegged this guy uh, in his hypocrisy if that's what was needed. But this man is different. He's a good man with a great question. He's eager to learn. He's quick to listen. He comes to Jesus with a humble posture, and he's lived a really good life. And many of us can identify, can't we? I'm 43 years old, and I've never murdered anyone. I've killed some spiders and some bugs. I've run over a few squirrels, but I've never taken a person's life. I've been married for just over 21 years and I've never had an emotional or physical affair in my marriage. The last time I remember stealing was when I was five years old. I got caught and I haven't done it since. Now, I don't, I, I don't stand before you innocent of sin. I've sinned much. I won't hang out my dirty laundry here but I'm not innocent by any means. And it's clear that this man in in Mark 10 had, had probably not heard the Sermon on the Mount because we know that the true intent of God's law goes much deeper than, than just outward performance. We studied the Sermon on the Mount earlier this year, pre-COVID. That seems like forever ago, doesn't it? <laughs> but we actually did study the Sermon on the Mount in 2020. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus tells us that lust is is adultery, Uh, anger and hate can be murderous, and so on. So so actually, these commands can be understood at a much uh, deeper level. We feel convicted when we understand them in that way. But this man doesn't understand them that way. He feels like he's a good guy. He's kept the commandments, at least outwardly. And some of us can identify with him. We we feel good about that. And some of us have neighbors who don't worship the Lord, but they live very upstanding lives. And if we're honest, that doesn't really bother us that much. Good people make the best neighbors, right? Cincinnati is filled with good people. We might cuss at the Reds and the Bengals a little bit, but Cincinnati is filled with good, family-oriented, moral people. Many of us can identify with this man, and many of us live next to people just like this man. But we're about to have our worlds turned upside down because even though Jesus loves this guy who's lived a good life and is asking the right question, 
He's about to call this man to a completely different understanding of goodness, a much deeper goodness, and to a path of eternal life that, that calls for sacrifice. This is the second part of our passage this morning. And it's the gospel call. We've got a good man with a great question, and now we move to the gospel call. The gospel proclaims God alone as good and humanity as lacking that goodness. Psalm 14.1 says, there is no one who does good. Psalm 53 repeats that same truth. Romans 3.12, quoting the psalm, says there's no one who does good, not even one. And the idea here is that no one is constantly good like God. We lack his consistent goodness. Think of Isaiah for a minute. Isaiah was so overcome by God that when he saw him, he declared, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Just the use of his mouth made Isaiah realize how short he fell before God. Yes, for some of us, the gospel call is a call to, to turn from bad behaviors, to turn from sin. We turn from lying, we turn from cheating, we turn from stealing, and we turn towards righteousness. We've encountered people in the Bible the last few weeks who had some obvious flaws. They clearly had something to repent of. But some of us are tempted, like this rich young man, to compare our actions to them and feel good about how we've lived. Well, I don't need to repent of that. And I don't need to repent of that. I'm obviously pretty good. But if we do that, we aren't looking at the right standard. You see, the gospel call can also be a call to let go of good things we've given ourselves to in destructive ways. Tim Keller says it this way, we may be using our good things to deal with the imperfections that no one else can see. We may be incessantly trying to turn material wealth into a spiritual treasure to deal with that inner sense of poverty. We may be trying to turn physical beauty into spiritual beauty to deal with that inner sense of deformity. We may be using our good things to feel superior to others or to get them to do the things that we want them to do. Most of all, we may point to our, our good things, our achievements and our, our attainments and say to God, look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. That last line is key. Salvation does not come by saying to God, look what I've done. No matter how much good you can pile up, your goodness is just a little sandcastle beside the mountain of God's goodness. For all that the rich young ruler had, he lacked something significant. He lacked a dependence on God. He depended on himself instead. He depended on his bank account, his accomplishments, his good works. Jesus looks at this man, or more precisely into this man, and he sees what he lacks and he tells him what it is. 
In verse 21, Jesus says, go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. In this case, Jesus sees that money and material possessions have this man's deepest affections. Jesus sees that this man loves and trusts his bank account, his hard assets, and his investment portfolio more than anything else. And Jesus says, if you want eternal life, you're going to have to let that go. The gospel call is a call to lay down our worldly loves and ambitions, even the good ones, and make God our first love and the anchor of our lives. In Mark 8, 34 to 36, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The gospel call is a call to all people to turn from the temporal and to the eternal. You have to let go of the temporal and take hold of the eternal. For this man, it was money. But any one of us could be captured by any number of things that is not God himself. And some of these things might not be viewed as bad. It could be a relationship. It could be a career. It could be a lifestyle. But if anything or anyone other than God serves as our center, our foundation, our anchor, then we cannot be in right relationship with God. We have placed something or someone else on the throne of our lives other than our creator. And if we've done that, that is sin. And sin separates us from God. But the gospel is the good news that God saves humanity from ourselves, from our sin, from his wrath against our sin. The gospel is the explanation of how eternal life can be attained. The gospel is the message of salvation. Salvation comes by letting go of the prophets of this world and following Christ instead. That's what Jesus calls this man to do. And it's at this point in the story that it actually turns in a, in a terrible way. This good man with a great question hears the gospel call and he walks away grieved. We've got a grieved man because he's one who owned much property. <clears throat> he couldn't let that go. The house, the car, I guess in this case it was a, a donkey, the land, the property, the possessions, these things had his deepest affection. But we're kind of left speechless and stunned if we're honest. I mean, this is the kind of guy that many churches would be happy to receive, no questions asked. He's a good man who's young. He's got money. Here's the membership form. Congratulations, you're part of us now. And would you like to be on the finance committee? Well, maybe Jesus will chase after this guy, meet him halfway and work with him for a bit. But no, he doesn't. The verses that follow show that Jesus doesn't chase after him. He lets him walk away. 
Instead, he turns to the disciples in verse 23, which we didn't actually read, and he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then he basically says it again in verse 24, only he doesn't single out the wealthy this time. He just says how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are shocked. Their response to this whole thing is, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says in verse 27, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Meaning, human beings can't save themselves. They can't work their way into heaven with goodness. Self-sufficiency and self-effort is not the path to eternal life. You can try to avoid all the bad things people do. You can pile up a lot of good deeds, but you will not achieve perfection. And here's why. If you pile up a lot of good deeds, and if you climb the ladder of success, and if you raise really obedient children, if you are the definition of a self-made man or woman, if everybody praises you for what a good person you are, if you do any of those things or all of those things, your human heart will fill with pride. And eventually it will overflow with pride. The human heart will fill with self-confidence and self-security. And these things don't lead to trusting God. They lead to trusting yourself. This rich young ruler, this is a good man, and yet this is an idolatrous man. You can be both. Idolatry is worshiping someone or something, giving ourselves to someone or something, anything other than God. And the Lord will share the throne with no one and nothing. He is Lord of our lives or he isn't. And if he isn't, we should not expect eternal life. I know that some of you probably can't believe what I'm saying right now, but what I'm saying is the gospel. You see, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, indeed, there's no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. 1 John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Matthew 5, 47, Jesus said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. For the rich young ruler to look at Jesus and say, I've kept all the commandments since I was a child, was sort of true. We can believe him that he never physically murdered anyone, because many of us would say the same thing. It's possible he never literally stole anything. But all this goodness doesn't mean he was sinless. And when Jesus put his finger on this man's weakness, which we could call greed or the love of money or self-sufficiency, when Jesus touched there, it grieved this young man and pride led him to walk away. He was very open to a do more, try harder, be better message because that gave him control. He was confident in himself. But to be told you need to be dependent, you need to be vulnerable, 
Well, that's an entirely different way. And he wasn't. For the last several weeks, we've encountered people in the Bible who had lived in some shameful ways. Today, we encounter a man who'd lived very respectably, sure, but that doesn't mean he was worthy of eternal life. None of us are worthy of that. And for him to choose his possessions over Jesus tells us that he had an internal sin that he did not want to lay down. Perhaps this is true for some of us today. I'm certain it's true for some of our neighbors. Yes, things look good on the outside, but that doesn't mean our hearts are clean. Have you ever had a piece of fruit that looks good on the outside, but when you cut into it or you bite into it, you find a rotten spot? That's what's happening here. This man didn't have a criminal record or any massive life failures, and yet money and the security that comes with money defined who he was at the core of his being. Now, money in and of itself isn't bad, but it can shape us in ways that are not good. And that's what happened to this man. The story ends with him grieved and walking away because he was confident in himself and in in love with his possessions. It's not the happy ending story that we prefer and that we're used to, but it's the kind of story that gets our attention. And I think this story is calling us to three things this morning. First, it's calling us to let go of our goodness and trust in God's greatness. Salvation is not achieved by man. It is given by a gracious God when we trust in Jesus' work on the cross. Not only are we called to let go of our goodness, we're called to let go of our worldly loves and follow Christ wherever he may lead. Some of us are tempted to bank on ourselves. Our trust at the end of the day is on our good works. Some of us, if we're reflective and honest, cling to good things but we cling to them in sinful ways. Friend, Jesus is better than anything this world offers. And if he calls you to let go of something and follow him, you've got to do it. I'm gonna try to get these last two before my voice goes. Secondly, we need to love our neighbor irrespective of their repentance. Jesus didn't love this man after he repented. He loved this man, period. But notice how he loved him. He told him the truth, and he pointed him the way to eternal life. We need to do this with our neighbors when the opportunity presents itself, even our really good neighbors. Now, it's possible they might not respond to the gospel, but that doesn't mean we stop loving them. The art of neighboring says it this way. We don't love our neighbors to convert them. We love our neighbors because we are converted. Finally, let's bank on the blessings of life with Christ. Jesus promised this man eternal possessions, but he clung to his temporal ones. When Jesus calls us to let go of some things, he's actually promising us far better. Let's trust in his blessings 
and the things that come with following him.